Well, good afternoon and good morning to some of you still. Good late afternoon to some of you. My name is John Carroll. I'm the CEO and founder of the Service Council. And welcome to today's in-service podcast event, uh, a monthly, actually semi-monthly, bi-monthly uh, event series that we conduct where we go within industry and we go to the technology marketplace to feature some of the latest innovations, innovators, and thought leaders across the space. And I am uh, incredibly pleased to be joined today by Marnie Martin. Marnie is the President, Chief Strategy Officer of IFS, um, a, a, an organization that is just crushing it. Uh, we're going to learn more about their organization here. Um, and Marnie is also a board member. So Marnie, I just wanted to give you a warm welcome before we get into uh, some talking points, and then we'll kind of jump into things. It's a great pleasure to be here today on the podcast. And of course, I've been a big fan and following the Service Council for a long time. So thanks, John, for the invite. Outstanding. Uh, we uh, are very pleased to have Marnie serve in a board capacity and very pleased to feature her today. And we want to make this as interactive as possible. So this is live streaming to LinkedIn and to other podcast channels, Outcast and Twitter and Facebook and all the social feeds that you get your thing, your, your podcasts on. So Wherever you'd like to engage with us, we encourage you to do so. Uh, for those listening from LinkedIn, uh, please do feel free to comment, and we'll try to build that into today's discussion and get a reaction. Um, so uh, without further ado, uh, we're going to go ahead and jump in. And, and today's topic is really interesting. It's what is holding back scale? So we've been talking about transformation, scaling up, and there's been some hiccups in recent years that have perhaps uh, curtailed the opportunity to achieve such uh, skill. And so we'd like to dive into that topic today. And and Marnie, uh, but for our listening audience, um, just to, a quick introduction to yourself, personal and professional background, and then we'll dive into the company and a little bit more about what you do at IFS. So some, of course, know that I grew up on cattle ranches in the West. Uh, I was born in Oregon and then most of my childhood in Montana, Wyoming, which is where my families were from. They had settled out in the 1880s there. But I, at 17, came east and knew I wanted an international career and was working internationally um, when I was 21, 22 already. I've been in more than 70 countries. I started my career in tech. Uh, at a finance economics background, but the technology, specifically the growth of software and mobile telecommunications is what really uh, interested me as, a, as the greatest transformation that we would see in my lifetime so far, and I think we've done that. And then over time, I've focused on uh, the software vendor community, uh, specifically around companies that do service management, mobile workforce management, uh, customer experience, things like that. And it's been a great pleasure to be here at IFS. Uh, we do ERP, field service management, enterprise asset management, customer experience, uh, broadly speaking. We'll, get, we'll talk more about what that means, uh, but uh, that's what IFS does. Yeah, I, I, Marnie, I've, be, I've become part of the Marnie Martin fan club. Um, so <laughs> I'm, I'm following in your travels uh, as you go uh, global globe trotting. Uh, and so keep on posting those pictures of where you are, the glorious visits that you have with customers, because uh, I'm following you. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, living uh, vicariously through all your travels. Most of the places I've been have always been for work, but there are a few <laughs> places like Antarctica uh, that I did go uh, for personal travel. And yeah. then I'm waiting to visit one of our customers in New Zealand or a prospect. Otherwise, I think next year for my 50th, I'll need to go to New Zealand for that trip. But any of our New Zealand customers, if you want to invite me before that, let me know. 
<laughs> outstanding outstanding and and for our listening audience ifs has become a, a really recognizable brand and, and well known but could you perhaps uh frame for our audience a little bit more about ifs and your day-to-day -day role as president and chief strategy officer certainly it'd be my pleasure so you know i've been fortunate enough to be involved in uh, a few software unicorns uh and you know that means uh software companies that have been over a billion in, in valuation but ifs is one of the great success stories that we have crossed well over a billion in revenue uh during the period after darren joined me and many other great people at ifs but it's actually a 40 year old company uh, it was developed and founded in Sweden, uh, and we celebrated our 40th year. Uh, we always focused on service and asset-centric. In the, in the origin back in the 80s, uh, that was categorized under ERP. Uh, if you think even when I started my career in 96, 97 and implemented some of the first field service management, mobile workforce management, it's relatively new that this is a, a specialty. A lot of it came out of investments in the mid-90s. But of course, if you look at kind of ERP, uh, that has been known as a segment for much earlier. And when IFS started, we started as a service-centric ERP and an enterprise asset management provider and have grown from there. Outstanding. Outstanding. It's been fun to follow uh, the, the trajectory of the organization and Darren and, and, and yourself and the leadership team over there just doing a wonderful job steering and, and, and really taking a leadership position. So kudos to all of you. Um, so let's dive into the topic then, scaling up. Okay. So we, as you know, Service Council does a lot of research and uh, one of the re recent research projects uh, indicated that best-in-class service organizations report 43% profit margin as a percent of total company revenue. So the, the opportunity in service is enormous, right, and massive. Yet we still don't see the presence of chief service officers. I'm, I'm seeing them trickle out every now and then, I'm, and I'm always encouraged and, and excited and eager to, to meet these individuals and understand culturally you know, how their organization has shifted towards recognition. Um, and uh, you know, But then we reference back some of the members that we talked to, and as an example, one member of the service council a global medical device manufacturer with 30 billion in annual revenues reports only 1% of revenues generated from service, right? So there's still some opportunity here to get where we want to be in terms of the importance of service. Are we still witnessing a battle with respect to services recognition and as a differentiation and shouldn't, shouldn't service be a priority at this point? So I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone, at least at an operational and customer focused level, that would say service isn't a priority. Okay, so I think people that interact with customers know how important service is. I think the question is, you know, especially, and we're talking specifically about scalability. You know, if, if you are running a service organization that say under a billion in revenue, in general, your C-level executives will still know roughly what you do each and every day with your customers, generally speaking, around service. But as these companies get bigger and bigger, you're looking at the very large multinationals, like the example you gave of the medical device. One, I guarantee actually they're getting more than 1% service revenue. Maybe it's being blended into the product sales. Maybe they actually have an attached model. We might dive into that later. But it's such a differentiator for what they do, how they grow, the comparison with their peers. But the bigger the multinational becomes, I think the more disconnected the C-suite and their board often is 
from the people at the forefront of delivering, you know, operations or service, you know, if they're doing construction installs, et cetera. And, and that I think is an issue, you know, whether it's an issue, how they're, they're looking at the development of their service business, whether it's an issue, how they're thinking about the continued evolution and embracing both technology as well as other, uh, say, people productivity tools. Uh, and the chief service officer, I think, would help with that. Especially when you think about service becoming such a digital activity today and what's holding back a lot of the evolution these businesses need is silos and not having someone that has enough stature in the organization to really connect the dots and, and evolve the organization going forward across people, process and technology. So I'll pause there. Uh, we can dissect that further. I know there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, no, no, good commentary. Yeah, we uh, we continue to see it rise in terms of it becoming a boardroom imperative. And so the notion that someone is being tapped, wh whether they are named chief service officer or by role, they're playing that role. Um, we're seeing more and more the presence of leadership. And and that's a critical element to achieving, you know, best in class metrics. From, I do want to go back to the profitability. So in this, this you, see, this you see in organizations that have prioritized service for a long time, yeah. they recognize that their service organizations are more profitable than often their manufacturing or other aspects. And again, there you're talking more from a servitization perspective where service becomes a product. In telco and utilities, as examples, their product is the service or the utility or access in some way. So they're, they're really driving kind of the outcomes, the management of aging infrastructure. It's a little bit different. But in your example of a medical device manufacturer or any sort of OEM like that, uh, in the journey to and, and beyond servitization, uh, thinking of outcomes-based service, you know, the CFO will always have a role in that because it is such a, a big generator of, of profit. And if you do service well, you actually have a, a pretty rapid um, working capital cycle related to realizing the benefits. Uh, you also can drive a lot more attach uh, to a product and a service, right? And, and that's where I think one of the, some of the challenges people have been and moving from say cost-based and, and a time frequency service contract, more of an outcomes-based service contract, is they're not attaching it at the point of sale. Right. Uh, if you think about our customer Rolls-Royce, or even you think about you buy a car, you have a warranty service, right? You're, you're, you're effectively prepaying for that. Uh, and that's something I, I think it's a model that for any product, equipment, or reasonably long-lived asset, uh, they should be making kind of the servitization journey a little easier on themselves and revising the business model at the initial point of sale so they don't have to invest so much time and resources and kind of selling different types of service contracts later. I think it also would be easier. Uh, one of the barriers to scalability that I think doesn't get talked about enough is that a lot of these historical service contracts, uh, companies might not know well enough which ones are profitable which ones aren't how they might migrate to kind of a more common model or an outcomes-based model sometimes when you have customers they'll be like i literally have thousands of types of service contracts out there yes we're embracing new technology but i actually need you to help me map our old service contracts into what are kind of new service contracts and, and more profitable ones and that's where at least for ifs that 
that interconnectedness around not just field service, but also the finance side of it and even parts and all the other things that come together is so important and of such value for our customers. Could, could not agree more on, on, on many of your thoughts. Um, you know, according to our research, uh, last year we did a KPI and metrics survey, best in class achievement in terms of contract attach rates was somewhere in the 76 percentage. But the gap between best in class and average was it, it, nearly half in mm -hmm. terms of yes. reporting on average in terms of attach rates was 39%. And to, to what degree that impacts the balance statement in terms of service being treated as a profit center? My goodness, that's a massive. Um, and, and, and ultimately, so, that's yeah. a sales problem. I mean, yes, yeah. service is the delivery of it, but you know, when you talk about that, that's a that's a selling or a go to market issue that needs to be resolved, right? And I Indeed. think that's something that a lot of a lot of businesses see service as, oh, that's just what you do after I've sold something. But actually, the intersection of the entire go to market, the marketing, selling, everything tying together, and then really optimizing the scalability of that, the revenue potential of that, and of course, the profitability of that uh, is what we work a lot with our customers to do, especially in the manufacturing sector. Interesting points. Let's go, let's go forward. So uh, according to the 2023 Service Leaders Agenda Survey, uh, that's an annual report that we do, uh, we've done it for the last five years, just kind of looking at the macro level trends impacting service leaders and where are they placing their bets in the next year, in the next five years. Um, the top internal and external challenges for the next 12 months include workforce and talent shortage. Goodness gracious, that continues. Um, lack of resources to support demand, workforce engagement and retention and skill sets and quality of workforce shortage, right? So we've talked ad nauseum about uh, the, uh, the, 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 the great resignation. We've talked about the retirement crisis. It's still present and it might even be widening. Uh, what do you make of these observations? Is the talent crisis still very real and current? So if you're in the U.S. and in most developed countries, absolutely. And it's never going to change, right? I mean, uh, you know, whatever we do about immigration policy and trying to incentivize uh, people to have more children or what have you around the developed world, that'll be yet to be seen. But in the here and now, the talent shortage isn't going away, uh, at least if you look at the next 10 years, 20 years. So this is where, you know, technologies that can augment talent and, and think through how you utilize the, the asset intelligence or customer intelligence or workforce intelligence that you have are going to be very critical. So I talk all the time that I don't think it's optional to implement products like our planning, scheduling and optimization software anymore because of the talent shortage you know, it's not going to go away. So you want to make sure that you're maximizing the people that you have. So yes, part of it is driving productivity so you can satisfy as many customers, as many operational or service needs that you need. But it's also just practically, how do you best serve demand? How do you best, you know, handle this? And then also bringing in additional technology where you can augment people that, you know, a lot of the assets and equipment, we have so much more knowledge about them than we ever did. You know, I remember going back to the ranch, you know, when I got taught how to, you know, do something mechanical or repair something, it was almost like what I called the apprenticeship from, you know, my dad or my granddad or, or one of the other uh, people that worked on the farm. They would show me manually how to do it. 
Then, of course, you did have manuals. And now <laughs> we have everything from YouTube videos to AR assisted, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. point being is that I always think through as if I was going to go do uh, one of these field service jobs, right? And I love going on ride-alongs and all these things with the people. And I often ask them, I, I make a joke of it because it's kind of a bonding experience. So if I were doing your job, how could I learn how to do it the fastest? And at first they have a chuckle, but then we get into a really interesting discussion on how we use mobile and all of our technologies that we have today to augment and assist with knowledge, i.e. getting Marnie up to speed on their job. <laughs> And it's really a fascinating discussion and there's so much that we can do. And I think, you know, we've had, for example, AI assisted knowledge management chatbots for quite some time here at IFS. And we've also been working with Microsoft and OpenAI uh, on precursors and then of course ChatGPT. And what's cool about that is again, this isn't something that's brand new. We've been working on this for a long time, but now we've gotten to the stage that more accents and language can be uh, recognized. I have a fairly neutral accent, but I'll tell you that was a big problem for a long time that language recognition was uh, say uh, verbose enough uh, to understand things. And then we had to have uh, data sets that were, that were relevant enough that you know, we could search through them quickly and return available information. And then we had to be able to regurgitate that information in a way that was easier, faster, more tailored. Because even in the early stages of this, you know, having a PDF you have to look through and this and that is, is quite clunky. So ChatGPT is an example of, of many types of things coming together in ways that'll be really useful. But it's how you apply all these various things to offset the talent shortage in developing countries that, that's super relevant. And then it also, how we apply this will assist developing countries that often have a very large and younger labor pool to grow even faster, right? Because in, in our world, you know, in general per capita incomes are fairly high and developing growth country growth rates are higher by a percentage GDP, but the per capita income is still lower. So they're also very ambitious of how they're raising that. And certainly the embrace of technology and, and differential skills is, is ubiquitous or, or something that helps that regardless uh, whether you're in a uh, more developed or less developed country around the world. But, but again, how we utilize technology to drive customer outcomes and to enable people is ultimately why we have technology. And it goes back to even when we had, you know, fire and the first wheel. Now we're talking about digitally enabled technology and how we continue evolving with that. But technology at the beginning was how we make people's lives better. You know, warmer houses, drive, you know, then we had airplanes and, you know, you can go on from there. <laughs> Absolutely. And and just supplementing your commentary in terms of how, how do we deepen engagement? How do we empower our, our frontline and workforce? The number uh, we, we asked technicians, uh, our uh, annual survey, the voice of the field service engineer is out in market currently. Last year, uh, we got about 2000 technicians that responded. This year, uh, we're eclipsing that shortly. Um, the number two dislike of their day-to-day -day was the time spent finding information. Number one mm -hmm. was paperwork and admin. Um, so how do we make their life easier? How do we deepen engagement? How do we upskill? And, and look, it's, it's no shock that service leaders are prioritizing technology and digital transformation investments that are information-oriented. 
right? So the number one expanded investment, knowledge management. The number two expanded investment, BI, right? The number one new uh, investment, field service management platforms. Um, and I think that's part of making information, customer history, asset history, and all the knowledge required accessible to our frontline so that their day and their lives are a little bit easier. Um, and, and we call it a, you know, moving towards this employee effort model or making this platform that is technician agnostic, that it doesn't matter how experienced you are, you can be empowered just like the next gentleman or gentle lady in terms of delivering that same experience. So um, that's, that's uh, just some of the things. Looking, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. It's definitely yeah. what we're looking to do. Uh, and I'll say that, you know, you'll always have companies on different layers of maturity curves. And yeah. also I'd say, confidence and the word I like to use is evolution versus digital transformation because our yeah. world is digital already. So it's more how we evolve in digital capabilities at this point. So I definitely advocate and I hope <laughs> that I continue uh, to drive some of the, the purchase and awareness of, of why investing in field service management is important. Uh, you know, and that's something also uh, we do a lot of future field service uh, events and global tour, as you know, as well. Indeed. But I think, you know, often when I when I see customers and, and this is partly why I also try and, and engage with uh, field techs the way I do is that, you know, people people often are thinking about how do you recreate the processes that field techs in a given work group or business unit or, or division or what have you or country do today. And, and that is necessary. Like I always say that in order to go to the future, you have to deal with the present and you'll also have some baggage from the past. So when we're putting in software, there'll be business processes and other things that we have to happen today that need to suit the process today, the challenges they have today, et cetera. But that over time, if you only do that, that is what prevents scalability. Right. You know, one of the things I hear a lot of global CIOs talk about is, hey, I, you know, I want to standardize across all of our countries, all of our divisions, etc. Certainly that is a good idea to think about related to, say, the common impediments or what are the blockages to scalability, growth, things like that. But you also will always have in a given country work group division you know use case some variation and that's why i think you can put in the the understanding of what you need to do but then you have to keep thinking about the evolving needs and and those evolving needs will come from customers different asset performance information uh you know the the type of workforce you might have or how you evolve and train the workforce and i think what happens is that there's almost too much data sometimes in these businesses. I went and visited some of my friends at CERN, the nuclear collider, and, and I think that, well, they have had to solve through scientific method and hypotheses how to deal with having too much data. And I think there's things that can be learned from a lot of these companies that, that they have assembled these huge data hubs, but they actually don't know what's insightful or where should they look for the bottlenecks to scalability or, you know, operational or customer improvements, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, the, there's uh, too much of a wealth of, of, of data uh, in terms of understanding where to start, what is important, what isn't. And, and you gotta caution making the, the life of a technician and a frontline agent too complex as well, right? So uh, there's an element there. Well, it doesn't uh, direct value. You know, one of the things that, 
again, rightly or wrongly, a lot of these uh, investment programs, and if you think about who participates in design workshops and technology projects, it's often a lot of IT and kind of back office teams, et cetera. You often don't have a lot of field technicians in them because they're typically very busy doing their job, right? Sure. But, but we also aren't then bringing them in, like thinking through the art of the possible and, and is some of the data flow and other things that the IT or the back office thinks would be helpful. Is it truly helpful? Right. And Marnie leaning in, I think it's perhaps we froze here for just a moment. Okay. Uh, and we've got you back. No worries. <laughs> Good. Sorry about that. But, but I think, um, you know, you have to always think about the value of the business process or the value of the data and the workflow, right? Indeed. And that's where I think a lot of companies are collecting things that that might seem useful but aren't truly useful. Yep. And then there might be other things that actually are much more insightful and useful uh, that they're not collecting. And I think that even goes to how you – you look at either operational metrics uh, or even, you know, what you have in the intel from a uh, connected asset or IoT, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, so it'll be interesting. I think we should have a little bit more uh, <laughs> kind of hypotheses on, on how we test some of these things uh, and, and work that in. And I think that would help uh, with, with evolution and also driving more scalability to achieve some of these outcomes. Absolutely. Let, let's move towards that in terms of service delivery methods. So according to the same research survey, the service leaders agenda, 45% of respondents ex expect to achieve predictive and proactive service in 2023, with 23% expected to achieve outcome-based services. Uh, we conducted a follow-up research survey because we just weren't satisfied with that data. And we wanted to learn, okay, what's real, what's not. And our hypothesis was that operationally, predictive, proactive, and perhaps even outcome-based had been achieved operationally. But in terms of its monetization, maybe it's not only you know happening in pockets or not happening universally. Um, I, I have a three-part question for you. So the first one is, would you agree with that observation in terms of operationally achieved monetization, perhaps in pockets? So... First off, one of the questions I always ask, because uh, it's very interesting, the answers you get is, you know, depending on what bucket, how, how companies rate themselves, sure. asking them to define what that means to them, right? So if they say they're proactive, predictive, or outcomes-based service, whatever it is, I then say, okay, what does that mean? Okay. And then you really get into, uh, pun intended, the nuts and bolts of it, right? Because... <laughs> You know, sometimes the outcome, they're calling outcomes-based service, they were already a very high quality service organization that there's actually no change in, you know, instead of calling it SLA achievement, they're calling it outcomes-based achievement, which is smart, right? So they're remarketing it, something that they were already delivering, okay? But then it's no wonder they're struggling with the monetization because they were already delivering that. So from a customer's perspective, you've renamed what you're already giving me, but you're not really giving me something different. Okay, so, so that's kind of the first analysis. And then I start asking, so, you know, then the question is, 
where can we tune your high quality service organization? And, and there it often comes to workforce productivity, spare parts stocking, uh, maybe there's some other types of revenue leakage, you know, things like that, which in every organization, you can always be more efficient in those regards, no matter how good of a service organization you are. And certainly the more that you can do from an optimization perspective. But going to the customer then, you need to think about what can what can you give them that they value more. And this is where sometimes your organization is, especially if you're in a, say you're a service provider and you're in a competitive service sales cycle, it's hard to get value for something that you're already delivering because there are other organizations that may not deliver, but the customer doesn't know they don't deliver unless they switch to them the other company fails and then they come back, right? Which obviously isn't ideal. So we have to be thinking through, maybe it's what they, they wanna have different types of visibility or maybe they want more flexibility in certain things or that maybe they, you know, whatever. So thinking through how we use technology to give them something that they value. And a lot of times it is transparency and other sorts of visibility data uh, because the actual service is, is already quite good. Sometimes there will be actual improvements in service where, you know, something that maybe took two to three trips now can only take one, or maybe you're moving more to condition usage-based maintenance versus time-based maintenance, you know, whatever the applicable thing is. Indeed. Proactive service, I'll say, Pretty much, if anybody says they're not doing proactive service, I'd say they don't really understand their customers. So that's usually uh, kind of the first step once you move off paper and get into any sort of data-based uh, environment where you're tracking customer and service needs. And then predictive service, you know, again, I'm a little bit of an AI nerd, uh, math <laughs> nerd. And I always want to ask them, okay, so what's your confidence interval or how are you measuring how predictive you are? And are you, are you actually being predictive because you kind of have a very stable service organization that you really understand your, your operational failure rates from such long experience? Or are you getting predictive also with new equipment that you really can take your IOD, IOT information with new equipment coming off the factory floor and, and be predictive even when you don't have a lot of operational knowledge? And, and that's really, I'd say in that predictive area, it gets really interesting. And, and I often segment, even within customers, having them think about, are you in a, from a value of data, are you in a low value, medium or high value data scenario? And it's a little bit like when you use training models to train AI algorithms or machine learning algorithms. You know, it again, it's only as good as the training library and how effective it is. And, and that's the same with predictive service. Outstanding. Outstanding. Let, let's talk about some of the impediments, right? So what, what is what is holding back organizations from achieving this? And you, I know you just talked about some of those areas. Any uh, in, in, in any supplemental comments on that regard? So first off, you know, for what it's worth, and, and again, you know, I, I started my career in finance and business, and I'm a business person regardless, uh, even though I sell technology, you know, I always think when I go into our customers' businesses as a partner, like, you know, what would I do if I was their manager and how do I think th through these things? So many of these businesses, I think, have enough differentiation at the time of sale of a product or equipment or a service that they can attach things, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, in a telco world, if you have the best performing network, Okay, customers come to you and you can actually either have 
higher retention rates, uh, lower churn, maybe lower subsidies, et cetera. So effectively being good at network maintenance and what have you to have greater uptime, that has a direct correlation to your customer base and what have you. And utilities, it depends a little bit. Is it kind of a monopoly, not a monopoly, regulated, unregulated? But, you know, you have some of those same trends. Uh, and then with manufacturers, I think it really depends, you know, is, is service part of the manufacturer OEM's value prop? In most cases, it will be. Okay, there's some exceptions, but in most cases, it will be. So then the question is, are you able to lock in that service stream of revenue at the time they make the purchase of you know whatever it is and a lot of them interestingly enough are not doing it like it, it's optional to buy the service or extend yep. out of warranty coverage or things like that rather than saying no really you're getting you know, maybe the product's not on a total lease basis uh, or a rental basis, but you know, you're locking in the service. I think later, uh, and you know, there are certain manufacturers that are competing with third-party service organizations, uh, or like say there's distributors and, and others, you know, or maybe you have a franchise business, uh, you know, a lot of farm equipment is that way that will be sold by local um, local distributors, even HVACs that way as well. And then I think it can get more complicated because you're competing with the third party service organizations and you need them, but you also compete with them. So there, those dynamics can be trickier to navigate through because you actually have a third party uh, service ecosystem that you're trying to grow, like a partner network uh, yes. that you can't cannibalize your partners. The dominant yeah. OEM, they can attach the service at the time of sale and should do that more often. And then I think overall, uh, for those that have a, also a third-party service network, um, it probably would be worthwhile that they kind of do a, a uh, almost a survey of all the service needs and then figure out uh, where they compete, where they cooperate uh, you know, with the third-party service network. But again, you know, anytime you're competing and driving price down, it's no wonder that service organizations aren't able to monetize some of their investments. Yep, indeed, indeed. And sometimes those extended networks that are supporting the end customer are even your customer, or your competitors, excuse me, right? No, no, so exactly. multi-vendor services. Correct. Um, a lot of times, just one last thing before I move yeah. from this point, Please. is a lot of times people are thinking about kind of their parts distribution strategy, parts stocking, parts revenue strategy disconnected from the service and the service ecosystem. And that's also a mistake because, you know, you talked about the medical device 1% service, but often when you look through peer groups, you can not only benchmark off of say service revenue compared to others, but also the revenue from parts. Uh, and, you know, whether they're below their peers, above their peers, you know, what are they doing? You hit upon a critical area. We just did a state of the market service supply chain benchmark survey. Mm -hmm. And the number two issue was the integration of service supply chain into the overall service business. Oh, it's yeah. a little bit disjointed. In fact, to, to build on that. To do it internally. Yeah. I think yeah. anytime you have, you know, so at IFS, we're, I don't know what, what the name for it is per se, but <laughs> we're, we're putting best of breed capabilities in a platform. Yep. Uh, and, you know, and I think that's important because now, if you're doing a platform that you don't have best of breed capabilities, you're not going to be able to compete effectively against your peers. 
But if you also have 10 best of breed solutions that don't integrate with the same data and, you know, complete workflow, you also aren't going to be able to compete effectively. So, you know, it's no surprise that as you're close to customers and prospects and what's held them back, you know, they really need best of best in class service capabilities, but within a platform that they can look holistically at some of these things and not have so many challenges to solving, uh, you know, what are what are perennial problems in service organizations that lessen profitability or decrease customer experience. People, parts, process, data, all those things together. For sure. Um, and field yeah. technicians want to do a great job. I think that's yeah. something that, you know, people don't talk about enough. Like, you know, they they want to do a good job, right? Yeah. And, and that's why I think the more we can enable them to be in the right place, the right time with a customer that isn't a disgruntled customer and have information to do a great job, you know, that, that enables them to feel valued and happy and proud of their work. And it also helps us to attract more people. I mean, if I have any advice to people that are recruiting field technicians is one, you know, Women can be mechanical and interested in that stuff too. I'm, I'm proof of that. And so are many others. But, but also that, you know, the more you make it seem like a fun job, people want to do that. And that's, you know, that's any job, right? Uh, but I think that's something that, you know, if we can showcase more and more the value, you know, I think it's always interesting if you think about recruiting campaigns uh, and what have you, you know, they're, they're going out and recruiting where the job looks like fun yep. and, you know, they're paid, you know, to do a, I mean, who wouldn't want a job that you get paid reasonably well and it's fun. That's what we all want. Sure. Absolutely. The number one, three and five desired mobile functionality of field engineers, according to the 2022 version of the voice of the field service engineer was parts, visibility, parts, ordering, and the ability to transfer truck stock to and from uh, oh, a yeah. colleague. Yeah. So critical element. Actually, uh, you know, and it's, we do that every day and have for many years. So, yeah. so that survey comes up all the time and it really pains me. So, uh, know. you know, it's, it's something that we can solve and fix and, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat mortified, you know, as an industry, we haven't already solved it, but, but it's it's within our control to do it, so we just need to get on with it. I'm with you. I'm with you. And and let's talk about the key ingredients for those organizations who have crossed that barrier. Can you just kind of frame some of those elements for our listening audience? So look, I think there's there's always what I would call economic fundamentals or business finance fundamentals that are hard to change in the short term, right? Say say you have uh, you know uh, so much demand today, like say suddenly. Well, sometimes that happens with catastrophes or, or, you know, weather events or things like that. But, but say that you've had so much success or you've opened a new region or state or, you know, territory, you've launched a new product, whatever it is, and demand has outstripped your supply of resources. Okay, that's a good problem to have. Yeah. But then you actually will say, hey, demand's outstripped my capacity. Maybe I didn't stock parts correctly, you know, things like that. So what we can offer where they have those is we do a lot of simulations and forward-looking planning. Mm -hmm. And sometimes our, uh, our customers will also have separate parts planning or other things, but we can really tie that in and really drive the forward-looking planning in enhanced ways across people, parts, and, and territory planning, et cetera. And that has a lot of value uh, for the companies that avail themselves of it. In the near term, 
you know, we can have either the parts stocking and the depots, you know, some people will also stock parts at FedEx locations, not their own. So, you know, it's, it's quite easy actually with IFS technology to track where the parts are, uh, forward reverse logistics, parts pickup, parts transfer, all that sort of stuff, and actually optimize all the schedule and automation around that. So we do that every day. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do, but it's something that IFS does for our customers. So, and you know, when it when the right data is there and the information is there, uh, the techno the technology works, you know, virtually flawlessly, uh, and everything gets automated uh, and adjusted, etc. You know, where you have, again, uh, shortages of, of resources or, you know, data that that isn't sufficient or accurate or things like that, you know, then there's issues. And there are times also that we handle also the van stock inventory because a lot of other mm -hmm. solutions don't have real-time updates, not only to people and schedules and customer needs, but also real-time updates to van stock or, or even, you know, depot stock or status. Um, reverse logistics is another area that people don't often think about as being part of field service. Here at IFS, uh, we're one of the few vendors that do think of reverse logistics as part of, of field service. Uh, and that's a big advantage because, you know, either you can, depends what you're doing with what you take back, but, but not having the clarity uh, and the intelligence and, and really driving not only the customer experience, but the, the profitability aspects uh, and then there's there's still lack of clarity with certain people in management and, and thinking through that the the old adages I think still apply with or without technology that you know if you do a maintenance visit and it never breaks you'll usually have a very high profitability service organization if you do that reasonably well and then your first time fix rate is quite good without having to stock huge amounts of inventory you're a very profitable service organization. If you start having to stock huge amounts of inventory and or, you know, you're doing two, three, four time visits to get something repaired, uh, you know, those are usually the service organizations that that need major operational and technological help. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And, and, and on the topic of reverse logistics, we uh, we hear the importance of uh, the sustainability element of that, right, in terms of recycling and remanufacturing, oh, yes. repurposing. And, and that's the opportunity side of it is that there's an enormous opportunity. So there's both responsibility and opportunity in that reverse uh, cycle, that circularity to the supply chain. Oh, for sure. So one of, uh, you know, ESG, of course, uh, we have an ESG mod module and ESG is something that, you know, is top of mind for everyone. Uh, I often talk to ESG officers uh, in larger companies. Usually it's the larger uh, customers that will have an ESG op operator. And I'm like, so have you measured where are you da, da, da. And I'm like they're like they answer whatever the answer and I'm like okay do you know how to improve your results they're like how I'm like through field service management reverse logistics and you know better planning around operations and repair like if you think about uh you know whether whether they're going to remanufacturing or refurbishing or anything like that, you know, everything that we do in service where we're extenuating the life of an existing asset, where we're being conscious of how much we drive, how we repair that asset, how we, you know, manufacture or create spare parts, how we recycle, all that sort of stuff. It's very, very concrete. 
And it's actually some of the most examples uh, of concrete uh, deliverables and improvements that you can make for ESG commitments. Absolutely. Let's get into a, 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 an area that is um, perhaps a little bit of confusion in the marketplace, perhaps overused, uh, the topic of digital transformation. Some people love the term. Some people are just tired of it. What, th there's, uh, we, we did a survey on digital transformation. We asked the definition of, you know, what does it mean to digitize versus digitalize versus modernize versus truly digitally transform? What are your viewpoints on this topic? So first off, uh, you know, similar to how I love mass, I also love language, right? And I think in language, there's always connotation and denotation in language, uh, as well as, of course, you know, uh, well, well, we'll stop there. But, but before I answer, how consistent were the definitions or the feedback related to those terms? Because I often feel like if you ask them, how many types of friend will a person have? They'll probably have as many types of friends as they have words for digital transformation. So I'm curious, as you kind of went a layer deeper, what did people say? Did it mean the same to them, the it, different it, terms, or did they have different denotation around those terms? It, it varied significantly. Uh, and and I guess the, the, the issue here is that not only did it vary across industry sector and from completely different walks of life, it varied within the same organization from multiple mm -hmm. tenants and multiple operations uh, executives that responded to the to the survey. So there's fragmentation not only cross industry vertical, but even within the four walls of a of a particular organization. So. Um, yeah, so there's and a little bit of disjointedness. Yes. Yeah, and that's what I see too. I think I I say all the time that you know people are individuals, and and kind of the the data set and your experiences, positive, negatively, neutral, or whatever color, and then again the connotation you have around words. Like we might mm -hmm. know what the meaning is in the dictionary, but which word of similar meaning, synonyms we call them, resonates more or what's been your experience, you know, this or that, that is really powerful. And I think it's important, and I talk about this all the time, that, you know, organizations are always evolving. They're either consciously evolving or they're unconsciously evolving, but they're always evolving. And I think, you know, maybe there's a few organizations around the world that are completely on paper and use no software. But I think in general, everyone more or less is a digital citizen at this point. So the question is, what are your priorities as a digital citizen? What are your priorities as a digital business? What do you perceive are the gaps that are holding you back? And what are the things that, you know, might be gaps or annoyances or whatever that, that aren't really that important, i.e. they're not holding you back. And one of the things, uh, it is really interesting doing the study that you did. Like if you start a project or you're having a, a workshop or something like that, you know, it's very easy to have the technology now where people can type in words and it starts <laughs> popping up on the screen. And that's actually a fascinating kickoff bonding and reorientation session to do at different times in a project or with different teams to kind of just get people thinking 
that, hey, I actually might mean the same thing, but I use different words. And it's also a really good technique if you have diverse teams or teams that haven't worked together because you want to create cohesion, right? Uh, I was an athlete for a long time in team sports. So you always, you know, you'll have people playing different positions, different skills, but you want to, you want to create that cohesion and that drive towards a common goal. Yep. So one of the things I often encourage is like, if we can, in IFS, we call it our true North. Like what, what is the goal that all of us can agree on? Right. Sometimes it'll be revenue growth, customer experience, you know, this or that. And then you map back to, okay, whether we call it digitalization, you know, digital through line, you know, whatever, in the end, it really doesn't matter. But how do we map to that outcome we agree with? And then you need to keep realigning people because I sometimes laugh that I, I swear that you can go, you think you have an alignment and then a month goes by and people have had different experiences and things have happened and you need to keep kind of realigning and re-saying, do we still agree with this goal? How are we mapping to it? And if you don't do that, though, that is when I think uh, you companies aren't successful. Either they never had the alignment on what really are the goals from the beginning or that alignment was lost and there wasn't anyone uh, that was able to get them back to it with also the influencing skills. My other word I hate is change management because <laughs> that usually means a one-time training program or train the trainer and you know because you need to be thinking about how these businesses are evolving and how you have a learning culture that supports that evolution uh, rather than kind of a, a one and done initiative, whatever you're calling it. We actually asked uh, in that survey, what is the impediment to the outcome, to your point, right? That it's it's all pointed towards that true north. And the, the, the one impediment that screamed out from the data was that 41% of service leaders report the inability to integrate technology into process workflows. So where technical and process workflows merge, converge, if you will. What is your approach or IFS's approach to ensuring customer success and the integration into and the evolution of the, the workflows within your customer base? I'm curious if you can offer uh, some viewpoints on that topic. So first off, I can say even from my own experience, you know, early in my career, we launched telco ne national telco networks from scratch. So won the license, built them out, put in all this, the retail systems, the network systems, the back office systems, like these were massive, massive projects, including billings, I mean, the whole shebang. And, you know, so I've lived through this, you know, but it also was more of a greenfield, right? So these were hugely complex projects, but they were greenfield projects. Yeah. And I always say that, yes, I cut my teeth on some of the hardest types of, of projects to do when I was in my 20s. But what also I realized, not just in those projects, but everything since, is how, I don't like to call it selling skills, right? Because a lot of people don't like being sold to, but you know, the influencing skills and the listening and then communicating and all this sort, you know, we call them soft skills or emotional intelligence, whatever word people like to use. But these are really underrated when it comes off into technology. You know, I always talk about AI or machine learning in the context of, of people, because in the end, that's what makes a difference in, in people's lives. I also think about, uh, you know, where we're going in the context of how we're evolving 
what people do, how they interact with software, et cetera. And, and this is really complex. And I'll say that, you know, I try to be close especially to our complex uh, mobile workforce management because there is so much uh, evolution and process change that often goes into it. But it's something we're also trying to teach is how we can work in those ways with our customers, bridging kind of what they need from a legacy process perspective as they change stakeholders to also where they want to go and where the technology and, and understanding of the data and everything else will allow them to go because they're interrelated, but they're not the same things. Yeah. And there's an example with a great customer we have uh, who I really enjoy working with that, you know, as we have worked with more and more groups within different business users, things like that, we have met a much broader uh, group of, of stakeholders than we did in the initial demo design or early phases of the project. And they have some valid points right so we are implementing what we what we demoed what they bought uh what we went through the design workshops you know what got validated by the majority of the business but people who are actually users and do it day in day out and interact with the mobile application are coming back with some really valid points okay yes it's late in the project yes it would have been nice <laughs> if these were brought up in the design phase but, you know, these are valid and important points that need to be listened to. So, you know, myself, others, you know, also the pre-sales team, R&D, et cetera, you know, we're all leaning in and, you know, we'll figure out uh, how we evolve with, with what they need today. And then also where we continue innovating with the, the product. You know, it's one thing that uh, here at IFS, uh, I wouldn't be at IFS if we aren't really a community within a vendor on how we interact with our customers. And that includes how R&D listens to them, how consulting listens to them, how sales, pre-sales, you know, management, et cetera, listens to them. But I, I do think also there's always an inherent tension between time to value, like let's get the project done quickly to, you know, we wanna build kind of the perfect thing and, you know, we want it to be perfect for everyone. And it's hard to satisfy everyone, but you need someone that has the operational and technology experience within each of these customers to really navigate it through that. Because, you know, if you create an MVP that's dumbed down and nobody loves it, the fact that you went live and, you know, two months or three months or whatever, you know, it really isn't of value. And I think that's something that, you know, people need to be close enough to the end users to really understand uh, what brings them value, what doesn't, and then we need to do our job as vendors uh, working through that both in the here and now as well as what we continue to develop. And, and let's go there if you could, um, if we could uh, together. Um, wh what's the next phase of growth for, for IFS and, and its customers? So, you know, every time I go to a customer and, and they tell us how, you know, we're helping them to grow and grow faster and their profitability, you know, it's awesome. I'll say that, you know, like any, any vendor, these are complex projects and this and that, but, you know, our customers, and that's why you see the engagement they have that, you know, they're getting the results and the business value from the software. We're helping them to delight their customers better, to grow faster and be more profitable. So that gives me such joy. Uh, you know, there's always things we want to do better. And, and I'm always the first to say uh, that. But 
but the real business value we're delivering and, and seeing our customers grow, I mean, that, that just gives me so much satisfaction. Related to IFS, you know, we're also growing, you know, we're running, uh, we're with customers that are, you know, are in 120, 130 cust- uh, countries around the world. Uh, you know, we ourselves are, you know, in I don't know, 60 countries around the world and running global go to markets. Uh, we've built out relationships with not only the, the big global system integrators, but a lot of great regional com- uh, partners. So the rate of growth is, is huge. I'd say overall, we're outgrowing the market. You know, for us, we're thinking of how we become a, a two billion dollar, a two billion revenue company, then a three billion revenue company, etc. It's kind of an interesting thing that you know, SAP, Microsoft, Salesforce, Oracle. You know, their growth uh, of that sort happened a long time ago, and and now they're kind of, you know, more into the place that they are. Uh, and then there's not that many uh, software companies that have been focused on our industries and our application suites that have, you know, even gotten to the side we are, let alone the trajectory going forward. So it's exciting and I think very needed. You know, I posted on LinkedIn uh, yesterday related to planning, scheduling, optimization that there are 3.3 billion employees in this world now of 8 billion. So first, there's a lot of, of young people in some of these countries around the world that will be coming into the workforce. And then you're also going to see a lot of continued need of going back to our first point of, of how to better schedule and, and meet the needs. So, you know, a product like PSO, Planning, Scheduling, Optimization, in my opinion, will over time in the next 20 years become much more impactful as an emerging area, entire category than CRM. Right. I think when CRM split out of ERP and, and of course what Salesforce has done, you know, that puts CRM as a map, not as a, you know, a footnote in an ERP suite, but as a category in and of itself. And, and I think IFS has that potential to do the same in mobile workforce management, especially around uh, PSO. And then if you look at really the value in project service and asset uh, businesses of having a platform with best in breed capabilities, given that, you know, two-thirds at least of the the world economy is service and then you add utilities manufacturing telco etc you know we're in the right segments in the right area i think uh, to continue growing and and it'll be really interesting uh where we go that's outstanding marnie and and for our listening audience just to close out with uh, the value you receive, uh, well, first of all, let me talk about the value we receive uh, by you being a board member. Thank you. Wanted to extend our gratitude. It's been very rewarding. Our partnership with IFS has been very rewarding. Uh, many of your customers are on our industry advisory board, and we are the beneficiary of hearing all the wonderful things you're doing with your customers at our Smarter Services Executive Symposium and, and throughout all these uh, digital events that we do uh, here. Um, so thank you. Uh, but what is the value you receive from being a board member and maybe something personal about yourself, something you're looking forward to or something about yourself that our listening audience doesn't know? So first off, you know, one, thank you for inviting me on board. I think it, it reflects how important service is and, and also being able to participate in the service council. You know, we now do our future field service events, but, you know, when I started my journey focusing on service management specifically, um, which is a while ago, Service Council was really one of the only venues and now continuing to expand it as there's new types of technology. You know, what's really interesting is this is such a technology rich ecosystem. A lot of people 
had a view that, you know, field service was done on paper. And, you know, I think thinking back to maybe the 50s or something, I don't know. But, you know, it is so technology enabled and there's so much opportunity, you know, even thinking about how we solve some of the asset predictive maintenance, you know, thinking through time series data with operational and other types, you know, it's just such a cool and fascinating sector. And one of the things I love about being on the service council board is you really get exposed to different best of breed vendors, different capabilities, different viewpoints on it, right? Because I think that, you know, I, I love to continuously learn and, and be around other smart people that drive that. And <laughs> all the board members on the service council are really that quality and that level of experience. So it's, it's hugely enjoyable for me uh, to participate, awesome. to learn, to listen uh, to my colleagues on the board, and, and hopefully they feel the same, but it really is a great honor to be there. So probably most people know I'm a big horseback rider. Uh, <laughs> I started riding when I was a little, little girl, uh, and what I've done with horses, of course, has changed over the years in the various disciplines, but um, you know, I've never stopped riding. And uh, I actually switched to dressage uh, when I lived in Europe. I've lived in Europe overall about 10 years of my career and kind of fell in love with it there and uh, still ride uh, most days. The days that I'm home, I'll ride early or late and things like that. And, awesome. and certainly uh, it's a big part of what I do. And I, it's both good exercise and it's something that's really demanding. You know, I think it's... Um, it's important to have, you know, hobbies that you love, but it, it's also something that uh, really makes me focus on it. So it's a nice alternative to work. Outstanding. She is Marnie Martin. She's the president and chief strategy officer of IFS. She's a board member of the service council, and this has been a very rich discussion. Marnie, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Anytime. And really, I hope everyone enjoys it. And if there's anything you think I've missed or you want to continue the conversation, we'd love that too. And we'd be happy to facilitate that. So thank you for joining today's in-service podcast. And uh, this will be accessible uh, on LinkedIn and on whatever podcast channel you subscribe to. So if you want to reference it back or share it with colleagues, we encourage you to do so. Thank you once again, Marnie. We'll see you all in the next one. Thank you so much.